ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace, you can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Welcome to the Visual Workplace. I'm Gwendolyn Galsworth, your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the dynamic living landscape of work through visual devices and through visual mini systems, how to install the language of our current level of operational excellence, even if we're not quite as excellent as we wish we would be, or we know we will be. We install that level. We make it concrete and specific through visual devices, through mini systems, through macro systems, so we can literally see how we think and predict how that thinking will function because we've captured it, we've embedded it through visual devices. Wonderful, isn't it? And why do we bother? We bother because we get great bottom line results, improved safety, better quality, aligned delivery time, shrinking costs, least cost means, for example. We also get splendid cultural alignment because think of it, we're developing a language a system of connectivity through these devices. And what we get is a spirited and engaged and contributing workforce on all levels, including the plant manager and the CEO. This is a language for everyone. (laughs) And what else? Well, we enjoy ourselves at work. We enjoy ourselves along the way. The enterprise becomes increasingly conscious, fluid, self-aware, self-regulating, self-explaining, And we align and enjoy ourselves with that. We go to work. We do the dance of work because we can. That's why we implement a visual workplace. And that's why we do this show. This is why I do this show with such pleasure. I love love sharing this information with you. So today we're going to delve into lean. And we're going to talk about the dilemma of what I call the two leans. I want to kind of begin this conversation so that you understand that lean is part of visual thinking. We don't dismiss it. We don't see it as something alien to us. It is separate, true, but it is equal. So I want to talk about that, and I have a few stories to share. Before I do, I want to invite you to visit us at our at our website, visualworkplace.com. On there, you'll find my podcast. You'll also find more than 100, I think something like 120 articles that I've written for our newsletter. They're free for the reading and for the taking. And uh, so they represent a kind of small education in visuality. I want to share the knowledge that I've accumulated over now. My goodness, it's actually over 35 years. And I've been doing this since 1983 and doing it with a great deal of relish and enjoyment and discovery and deepening understanding. It's really been a gift to my life. And we're here to share that knowledge. So visit us at visualworkplace.com. You can find my books there. You can find them also on Amazon. And you can find some other products that will support your visual conversion. I highly recommend I highly recommend our online training systems. They are fantastic. I've narrated them. I've created them. And they've just got hundreds and hundreds of examples, also our Pokeyoke system. So please take a look. All right. Oh, yes. And you can email us. You can email me directly at radio at visualworkplace.com. If you have comments, if you have questions, if you want to send in photos, you send in photos. We'll find a place for them on our website if you allow us to share them. Okay? So visualworkplace.com and radio at visualworkplace.com for reaching us. Let's begin today's show. So today I want to talk about lean in its many, many faces. I want to talk about lean both as a kind of limited understanding that has enjoyed un uninhibited, unlimited tweaking, 
and also talk about what the core question is when we look at, if you will, the two faces of lean. (laughs) It's (laughs) two-faced, at least. Does lean, in fact, have a hard edge? Does it have a limit? When a company puts its foot upon the path to lean, should it expect an endpoint, a completion, an arrival? Is it a bounded outcome that we as a company can achieve and then move on? Or is lean a forever commitment? Does it just go on and on? In short, is it a destination or process? Many companies convert from traditional manufacturing, even traditional hospital healthcare, to the new way, the new excellence through lean. This is a major step. Or let's say they attempt to. They focus in keeping with some of the tenets of lean. They focus on reducing the time, the time element or the time component of the process. They attack time as a cost factor in order to increase profit margin. That's, that means reducing cycle time as well. It means many things, and that's one of the things. And there's no bones about it. A time-based improvement mechanism is a crucial step in transforming your enterprise and increasing your profit margin. The lean strategy and its complement of lean tools are crucial to both those outcomes. Cellular design, tack time standard work, pull systems, line leveling, load balancing. Cellular design, for example, creates discrete fields of production that are defined by the value that gets added there. In cells that are designed for flow and pull, material, people, and information follow a path through the physical environment that cycle after improvement cycle begins to be described or could be described as the least cost flow, the least cost means. I love that word. I love that phraseology. It's so sparse. Hmm? I call this flow line, this least cost flow, the critical path. This came from Buckminster Fuller. Lockheed Martin used this a lot when it was challenging for the Joint Strike Fighter. 2002, I think, 2001, we were working with them then, the critical path. And I wonder, does this match your description of lean? Is it for you a time-based strategy focused on the critical path, straightening it out, streamlining that path, finding the least cost means? That has a pretty sharp edge to it. But it may leave you a bit puzzled kind of getting to the subject at hand, you may not recognize that version of lean. Don't worry. It's not your fault. (laughs) There's a lot going on in the field of lean today that makes it pretty fuzzy. No sharp edge. You may be focused instead on continuous improvement, Kaizen, process improvement, with nearly zero talk about any methods that I just mentioned, pull, Kanban, talk, tack time, talk time, (laughs) standard work. You may be thinking of lean as continuous improvement, as Kaizen. They kind of maybe get mixed up. Hard-edge technical tools on one side versus soft-edge continuous improvement CI tools on the other. This kind of dichotomy this false dichotomy may be set up for you. And you know what? These are not philosophical questions. These are practical, hard-nosed issues that every company needs to address and answer before it can legitimately commit to a journey of change called lean or before it can confidently be ready to invest the considerable resources that such a journey Entails In other shows, I'll talk to you, and I have talked to you already, about the wonderful alliance between visual and lean. But today I want to focus on the lean aspect, and in a couple of shows I'm going to bring in 
visual and talk about um, some of that interface as well. Of course, that's our ongoing discussion. But I kind of want to set this up because I have a few uh, core points to make about both implementations, decision-making around conversions that apply to visual in many cases. In this case, we're looking at lean. We're looking at the current state of lean in this regard, or should I say the current array of lean, a kind of runaway lean, a lean that has kind of, as I mentioned before, unlimited, uninhibited tweaking. So for me, some of you already know this because you've listened to my other shows, the journey for me started in 1983, the year I joined Productivity, Inc., Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was their lead. I was their head consultant and principal developer of methods coming out of Japan, many of them out of Toyota. Back then, just in time, JIT ruled, grounded in a handful of very specific Toyota-based methods, quality at the source, Pokioke, SMED, the wonderful work of my sensei, Shigeo Shingo, single minute exchange of dye. You may know it as quick changeover, pull systems, stockless production, Kanban talk time, tack time, etc. And you know what's so interesting, I'll just say as an aside, cellular design, which became so important several years later, at the very beginning, along with standard work, cellular design and standard work, pretty much at that time in the early, early days went unnoticed. They were deeply embedded in the production model of the great companies of Japan, but it would be several years before they were specifically noted, named, trained, and joined into the lexicon of core tools. Anyway, the decades came and went. I'm very, 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 very old. (laughs) The decades came and went. Many hands, many minds, many companies, many practitioners, many marketers touched this basic set of elements and made of it what they wanted and what they could. Largely at that time, I remember it well, two powerful forces were at work. The first, and this is strictly my point of view, I'm not promoting it as anything that you need to believe or embrace, but for me, two powerful forces were at work at that time. The first were the limitations and preferences of the Western mindset, of Western thought leaders, who rooted in their own personal understanding, taught their notion of these concepts and methods. Some of them taught these methods as orthodoxy, but it was still based on their understanding. And some of, some of these folks just made stuff up. So that was one force kind of um, factor. The second was the muscle of innovation, a knack that is well deployed in the West to adapt anything we did, especially if we didn't understand it, so that it would nonetheless be useful. So we would get the core seed of an idea, and then we would make something out of it, especially if it came from a good source. Rather than understanding it or because we were limited in our ability to understand either for societal reasons, never for cognitive reasons, we're very smart out here in the West, we would take this stuff coming out of Japan and we would try to make it useful because we wanted a new way. We needed a new way. It's not hard to see the positive and not so positive synergy between these two fault lines. One of them was our limited understanding, and the other was uninhibited tweaking. Innovation, you know, it's kind of related, but it was tweaking. It wasn't really redesigning. It was trying to make, as I said a moment ago, good use of. That's the way it was at the beginning when this came to us in 1983, 84, 85, 86. The whole 80s was, we were flooded with possibilities, and not too much of it 
was organized in terms of either a hierarchy or what's the most important thing or what's the core of this. It was just either a flood or a partial flood. We didn't know what we were missing and we didn't understand what was there. And with the passage of now nearly 40 years to bring us to now, this has produced many, many benefits. There's no question that we got tremendous mileage out of the early levels of what is now called lean, what was then JIT, which I describe as, to this day, a predetermined engineering benefit that is designed to strip out time out of your production system. Time as the great macro metric that holds all things. Time is the measure. It's the macro measure. It holds quality, good quality, bad quality. It holds delivery on time, not on time. It holds underutilization of machinery, um, downtime, stoppages, mix-ups. It holds grumpy employees. It holds everything. Time is our measure because... When it flows efficiently along the critical path, the profit margins are handsome and the culture is doing the dance of work, knowingly and happily. (laughs) Of course, with the help of visual, which we're not going to talk too much about today. Hmm? So there were many benefits, a great number of organizations on every industrialized continent have been and are currently engaged in serious and sincere journeys to lean. They're doing 5S, they're doing process and continuous improvement, they call it Kaizen. They've accepted the success formula that Western pundits and conferences have marketed. They've gotten benefit. That has already produced great good, due in large part to the equally tremendous distance that had to be traveled. In other words, there was lots and lots of low-hanging fruit. Any attention to it would improve it. You know, before it was, before the 1979 or so, it was make more, sell more, make more, sell more, make more, sell more. We never looked at our production system. We just kind of did adaptations of Henry Ford's assembly line or, or his way. Also in healthcare, no different. There was not any self-reflection. We didn't even realize we could do that. We thought we just bought it and unquestioningly. So we have covered a large chunk of that huge distance, both in thought and in muscle and in distance. And we think that we've arrived because progress has been made. But that has also, the same journey has brought us smack up against hidden deficits that have been accumulating over the same decades. And kind of behaviors or practices that are ready for adjustment. And I want to give you my take on that as we move into, let's call this a conversation in three parts. That was just one part talking about this kind of two types of lean. Two, what was the word that I used for it when I was, let me just look at my notes here. Yeah, the dilemma of the two leans. The soft lean, continuous improvement, cultural-based, everybody does something every day, and the harder edge lean. So I wanted to set up that. Uh, juxtaposition, that kind of rivalry, if you will. It's a false rivalry, but just to make this a little dramatic, because for me, who has lived it, and for companies who are struggling with it, it gets dramatic. It gets dramatic, and it becomes so interesting. What are our options? So moving on, I want to move now to, well, let me just put it this way. In many cases, a company's progress was gauged against a kind of tick box protocol of applications, of options, a list of tools, a list now of principles, 
And it's hard to argue with that either. We don't argue with the protocol or the list because so many companies have enjoyed and are enjoying a modicum, some, and sometimes a good deal of benefit, putting them in place. So much to do, so little time, we're happy for every inch of progress. But look at the many places that the pundits and the gurus have suggested to us as the right starting point. Consider this. Start with cellular design, we're told by one group. No, no, no. Start with building your training competency, says another pundit. No, no. Start with employee empowerment. That's what really matters. Do that first. Ah, no, no, no. We have to create a team of certified continuous improvement specialists. We have to get our kind of leadership framework in place. Oh, no, no, no. We have to first be ready organizationally. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I got a better first. First, be humble. Okay. First, set up standard work. First, do 5S. First, get senior management commitment. And then secure middle management commitment. First, develop a strategic improvement plan. You know this list. The fact remains that no one thing is of prime importance in lean. They are all important, really, aren't they? Nearly equally. Where and how do we begin? And where and how do we continue? What is the starting gate? What is the finish line? These are great questions, and they're tough. And when you ask many of these companies, what they are doing, whatever they're doing, they are likely to respond in one way. Ah, we're doing lean. Hmm, interesting. And I will tell you that the world of lean, the lean thinkers and the lean doers are grappling with a sharp illogic, a sharp illogic that is creating rumblings and uneasiness amongst the ranks and in the boardroom. These are the chickens of inconsistency and muddled thinking that over the past three or, goodness help us, four decades have come home to roost. These chickens have come home to roost. On the one hand, some of us see lean as a known and knowable destination, closely defined and achievable through a tight formulaic sequence of application, da-da, 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 da-da. Others of us hold that lean has become synonymous with continuous improvement or as, or maybe synonymous with, as uh, Dan Jones and Jim, uh, Jim Womack states, the pursuit of perfection. Lean as a never-ending process, coterminous with continuous improvement and without a hard edge. Muddled, muddled. What's, what's a person to do? What's a company to do? Muddleness. Muddleness troubles me because I, too, am a practitioner. And my allegiance is also to two worlds, but maybe not the two that you think of. Two worlds. This, this, this is how my dichotomy my parallel universes run. One of the worlds is a world of what works, what helps companies actually move forward. That's what I'm interested in. How do we get them to stay in business, succeed, build on that success, forge ahead, succeed, build a platform, build on that success, a world of practical inputs and knowable outputs. This is the work I glory in. This is the work that I do directly with companies. And it is broadly framed around what works and what is possible and what can we build on. And it also has a model. That I will reserve for another conversation. But I tell you, this is the most satisfying work of my life. I love writing books. I love giving presentations about my work. But where the mystery is, where the magic is, is working with a live and dynamic organization and helping it do something that I'm not going to say right now because it's 
the third part. So I'm just going to, I just, that word was going to pop right out of my mouth and I'm just going to wait. So for me, I have allegiance to what is practical. Practical inputs, knowable outputs, cause and effect, effect and cause. This is something that I also gloried in in the 1980s when I was working with Ryuji Fukuda and I was helping him with cause and effect diagram with the addition of cards, which eventually morphed into my scoreboarding. But this wonderful journey down the causal chain, some people call it problem solving, I call it the causal chain. And it is so interesting because there's no such thing as a silver bullet. There's a silver bullet for very, very refined uh, uh, questions of research and science, but not in the world of work. There are so many causes. How do you hold on to them? This has been very interesting. Anyway, the other world, the second world, is the world of words, the world of meaning, what things mean. This rivets me. I'm so interested how terms are defined how meaning adjusts, and how meaning lends us strength, how meaning can erode in words and throw us off our track, and how definitions crystalline and clear can get us back on again. I love the interface between words and meaning and practical transformative change. So the dilemma of the two leans is the result of a kind of democracy of actual use with the inevitable adaptations that follow and a free-for-all. So it's, it, it's a free-for-all, a free-for-all. No single entity is in charge of either the use or the definitions. There's no high priest or priestess who declares what is correct and what is not. I can imagine the Japanese write, I have a tabloid on us to uh, keep track of the uh, current abuses (laughs) of the model that they showed us 30, 40 years ago. I don't think they care that much. It's all a mess. It's all kind of tangled up, tangled up in itself. And from my vantage point, there is no way to unravel this knot, this Gordian knot of competing definitions and outcomes. Do you know the story of the Gordian knot? I want to tell it to you. First, you have to imagine a knot that is so tangled up in itself, you can't find the beginning end and you can't find the end end. It's just this thick ball, intractable intractable ball of stuff, impossibly tangled. Untying it is not a possibility. So the idea of the Gordian knot is the story of a town, a city, a walled city, Phrygia, Greek, of course, that had no king. And the way they settled finding a king, this was an ancient capital of a country, the oracle, who was a kind of a, a trance channel, the oracle, Delphic or- oracle, said, the next man who enters the city driving an ox cart should be your, ki- should be your king. Make him your king. And who comes in? A peasant, of course. Who else drives an ox cart? So this peasant comes in, and his name was Gordius. He drove into town, innocently enough, and suddenly he was declared king. Oh, he was king. And out of gratitude, his son dedicated the ox cart, because he's now, you know, son of a king, dedicated the ox cart to uh basically Zeus, major god in the Greek pantheon, and tied it to a post with an intricate knot, an intricate knot that was later described as several knots so tightly entangled that it was impossible to see how they were fastened or how they could be 
unfastened. So this went on for a while. And then the oracle said that any man who could unravel this elaborate knot would be destined to be ruler of all of Asia. And who comes along? Alexander the Great. In the 4th century BC, Alexander the Great comes along. He comes to this town. He looks at the knot. He knows that he can't untie it. And he gets this epiphany. You know what? All I have to do to get these pieces of rope and string untied is this. And he drew his sword, and he sliced the knot in half. In a single stroke, there was no more Gordian knot, and he did indeed become the uh, ruler of all of Asia, Alexander the Great. And it's called cutting the Gordian knot, which is when you are faced with an intractable problem that defies solutions, you have to render moot, M-O-O-T, moot, the perceived constraints of that problem. You have to slice right through it. That's the story of the Gordon, Gordian knot. Gordy, sorry, Gordian knot. So I'm saying, with this kind of in, complex confusion between, with these worlds of lean colliding, this kind of funny or false rivalry of continuous improvement versus technical predetermined engineering change triggered by the use of time, this set of very precise tools versus a kind of cultural overlay of let's just keep doing something every day, everybody, every day, something which is lean. How do you, how do you, how do you choose one or the other? This is Sophie's choice. How do you choose one over the other? When they're both important, which is more important? How do I talk about that? How do I get practical about it? And so what I'm suggesting as the solution to this dilemma that we are now living is that we follow in the manner of Alexander the Great. Why not skip the unraveling of this muddle and cut to the chase? No pun intended. Well, just skip the unraveling of how do, how do we get these two pieces to match and be powerful when it's all this kind of stew that's cooking. And I say, you pick up the sword of discernment, you swing high, and you let the blade fall and slice this entanglement with a single question. And that question is this. This is now we're moving into the third part of our discussion. The question is, the slice is, the edge of the sword is this. What does growth mean for my company? What does growth mean for my company is the sword swung high that will slice this entanglement and free the knot, the forces in the knot. Cut through this muddle. What do you do with the two pieces? Let's talk about it. Let's fight about it. Let's square off. Now forget about it. Ask a different question. Cut through it. What does growth mean for my company? What does growth mean for your company? This answer cannot be a canned response. It must be derived from what you know about your company and what you know it needs. You start working with this company, I'm sorry, with this question, and it will lead you to select improvement technologies or approaches designed to meet that need and achieve that growth. The same answer will show you how to spend or redeploy the resources released by the success of the improvement technology you selected. In other words, you use one improvement technology, you move ahead, you have a success, then look closely 
Use that sword. What does growth mean for my company? Look again. Look again and answer it again. What's next? What do I need now? The process part. Addressing this single question on the front side, in my view, is pivotal and holds many surprises and many insights that will prevent you from putting your foot upon an improvement path that is wrong for the enterprise or an improvement path that is there just for its own sake because everybody's doing it. As importantly, this question protects you from getting caught in the provocative and nearly unanswerable question of the moment, are there limits to lean? Which lean do I use? What's this dilemma? I have to choose between that lean and this lean? Or what does lean really mean? Or does it mean this? Or does it mean that? Just cut through it. It permits you instead a distance in which you can become focused on your own company's wealth and well-being and path forward. One word, growth. The company's growth. In far, far too many cases, a company's progress has been referred to as this tick box protocol of application options, the applications of a list of tools and more recently a list of principles. And it's hard to argue with those lists because so many companies have enjoyed benefit, as I said before, by ticking off the boxes. So much to do, so little time. First do this, then do that. First do this, then do that. First be humble. First get your leadership commitment. First this. What you're seeing there, by the way, when I say first implement cellular design, first be humble, first get senior management commitment, is you're seeing the confusion of orders of magnitude. This is something that is not spoken of enough. In fact, I don't think that Many people realize that the confusion comes because you're trying to mix orders of magnitude. They exist in a band uh, by themselves. And if you try to mix them, you can't get them to mix because they're on a different level. It's not a better level. It's not a higher level or a lower level. It's a different level. So when you say, let's do 5S first or be humble, what? Orders of magnitude. Do you see? So, I want to tell you a story. This is a story that will illustrate how you can, what it means to cut through and do what is right for your company. Yes, you have to get a lot smarter. We have to get a lot smarter about what our choices are. And we have to also find the courage to think and to question especially for the senior leaders that are listening, you have been been given resources that you are being asked to use wisely that will be used in such a way as to create growth and opportunity and a future for the company you work for, but also for the lives that you serve, the people who work there. And I think, you know, I don't think there are many leaders, executives, plant managers, CEO, who don't want to learn more. But I want to give you an example, which I lived through myself, which was an extraordinary example of a flip, a cutting through the Gordian knot and knowing what growth meant for this company. It was brought, the story happened in 2004. I was a Shingo examiner. I had been five or six years, eight years, something like that. And I was part of a site team that went to the Delphi facility in Del Nosa, Mexico for a site visit. Company had written a report, which, by the way, read like a lean playbook with all the requisites. And we went to verify, to validate and verify, to see if this, to verify this very impressive improvement profile that had been described in the challenge report and the achievement report. Read like a playbook. Quick changeovers, one-piece flow, quality at the source, cellular design solidly in place, totally connected 
integrated production floor, along with dramatic reductions in lead time and throughput time and accidents, reductions in defects, reduction in in costs, and all the associated increases in productivity and customer satisfaction and revenue profit margin. Oh, my God. The report shared a crystal clear manufacturing vision for operational excellence, and it was captured in a five-point progressive uh, model. This was the brainchild of uh, J.T. Battenberg, who was chairman and CEO of Delphi Corp. from 1998 to about 2005. He got into some trouble there, did some naughty things, but I'm telling you, as a leader, he was a model, a model of clarity. And I saw him a couple of times at conferences. He would always come in, whatever the season, with some kind of cashmere draped over his shoulders. So he had his mantle in place. He would sweep in, and he always had an entourage. And whether they came in a taxi or they walked, you knew that a private jet was waiting at the airport. I mean, he was so much about image and impact. And I bought the whole thing. I thought, man, oh, man. What a, I call him a barracuda leader. We'll do a few shows on leader. We'll do a lot of shows on leadership. But he was he was like wowzer. So he had mandated that this five point progressive model be implemented, deployed, uh, and used as an assessment tool for all his plants. What did he have? Four hundred plants in Delphi, tier one supplier to GM. It was a break off. In the 1990s, really became very successful. The five-point operational excellence system. I saw it in 1997. Wow. He was, he, he actively participated in bringing that whole Delphi group forward. And he also had the very active participation of a number of retired Toyota senseis, one for each of his divisions. It was a jewel of a model, following the classic TPS profile with dozens and dozens of Delphi sites working themselves into a lather every year to raise the score by even, I was told, by even 0.08, an impressive annual gain. Everybody would go out and have beer or whatever, whatever made them feel happy. Anyway, by the end of 2003, every... Every single one of these Delphi plants across all divisions had achieved a score of 4.5 or better. And at that year, at the annual meeting, I heard about this, but only after this thing happened in Reynosa. Battenberg shocked everybody when he announced that he was satisfied. And he was therefore retiring the five-point framework, this battle cry. We can imagine it, can't we? The palpable sense of relief in the audience. We've made it. We've arrived. We don't have to do this anymore. Oh, my God. Because because he held on tight. He checked and checked and rechecked. But Battenberg actually had a different agenda in mind. What he said next showed his true colors. I called him a moment ago a barracuda leader means nice as pie on the outside, but hungry on the inside, always looking for lunch. Everything is lunch. He's always looking for lunch. He's always ready to gobble it up. And what he said next was, okay, thank you. And we're finally ready. Now let's grow. Let's grow. We've reached the starting line. Let's grow. I want 30% more of everything. If it's negative, I want it to go down. If it's positive, I want it to go up by 30%. Standing next to me on this stage are our five Toyota senseis. They've gotten us this far. We've listened to them. Now, your sensei is going to be back there. When you get back there tomorrow, do whatever he tells you to. I want 30% of everything, more of everything. Okay, so the TPS deck of cards, so to speak, were thrown into the air. And when the cards came down, everything was about to change in radically by design, by decision. So back to the Del Nosa Nosa site visit. Our exam of the facility 
It's very, you know, what you do at the beginning of a site visit is you look at the plan. You do a walkabout and you begin to, you do your scan and you see the match between the achievement report. And then when that is over, after a couple of three hours, you go deeper and you go deep, deep, deep. So we're walking through the facilities and and increased throughput, you know, tremendous numbers in this achievement report submitted less than a year before. We're looking around. But there wasn't a cell in sight. What we saw as examiners didn't match the report. There were no cells. There was no pull. There were long these long assembly lines. And we thought, oh, my God, they lied. The report is full of misrepresentations. What are we going to do? How are we going to talk to them? There's no one-piece flow. Oh, my goodness. What has happened? What, how are we going to... S- so we said, okay, hey, can we meet? And plant manager met with us alone with our exam team. Sean Barker was there. For, uh, Costello, Steve Costello. Oh, man, what a brain he was, he has. Anyway, we said, hey, you've decoupled your cells. Everything's in assembly lines. We, we can't go on. And the site manager said, oh, no, 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 sorry. We didn't lie. It's just that, um, it's just that since we submitted the report, this event happened. We had our conference, and Yamada-san came in, and he told us to do things. And he said, you know, now you know how to achieve quality. You have a, a, a quality system. You have a utilization system. You poke-yoked the heck out of everything. Now let's get 30%. Let's get into this rapidly moving assembly line. 30, 35 people lined up. And let's get our 30% increase in everything. Oh, my goodness. They decoupled the cells. How could they do that? This is the contradiction of the fundamental TPS playbook, the one that we've been learning for 20 years here in this country because Toyota told us that's the way to do it. And now they're going backwards? No, no, no. They didn't go backwards. There was no contradiction in their mind about going against the model of lean because lean was there to serve the growth of their company, whatever that meant. And they had the eyesight, Battenberg included, had the eyesight to say, this is the way. We're not marketing this. We're not selling it. We are helping the company grow. A successful company is nothing if it is not alive, vital, robust, and seeking its next breakthrough systematically. No artificial allegiance to the model or to lean, including what others may think it was supposed to be. The breakthrough companies in the world are not in the business of implementing TPS. They're in the business of discovering what they need to to gain, to do, to gain greater stability, expansion, profit margins, prosperity. They repeatedly ask the same driving question, what does growth mean for us? And then they go for it. They are into growing the business. Is that a process or a destination? Respond as you will, as long as you recognize that there are no limits to the answer. Hmm? That's what I wanted to share with you today. I wanted to talk about lean and put to rest this impossibility of getting the way that lean has evolved over these last two or three decades into this, with all due respect, Jim, this kind of mishmash. How smart the Shingo Prize was to shift its terminology from lean to operational excellence. Excellence is something you can grow. I wanted to share this with you today because this is one of the worlds that I live in. I love the uh, the world of ideas as long as those ideas are practical and doable. Useful to us. Useful to us. And I want to suggest to you that you ask a great deal of your own thinking 
and you ask a great deal of your company. And that if you are a leader of your company, this is your work. Your work is to figure this out. There are steps to get you there. You need stability first. Stability always precedes growth. You need that. And that basically was what Battenberg did. He simply stabilized. And in stabilizing, he reached a level of achievement in those many, many plants that was, to that date, unheard of, unprecedented, inspiring, and a model. But then he said, okay, we're at the starting gate. Let's go. So this dilemma is a false dilemma. I want to suggest to you that you eat your Wheaties, you get a good night's sleep, and you engage in this glorious journey that we call operational excellence, of which visual is an indispensable part. (laughs) Oh, man. I wish, uh, I, I hope that I'm able to share with you some of the glories of a visual conversion so you can see the contribution that it makes. Or you can visit some of the companies where these conversions have happened. They're just breathtaking and gorgeous. And they come from thinking and doing and moving forward. They come from passion and belief. They come from making mistakes and recovering and continuing and continuing. So... I wanted to share these things with you. They're important to me. They are a baseline for me. I learned a great deal in the circumstances that I've described to you today. And it's been my pleasure truly to share them with you. So we're coming to the end of our show. I want to thank you very much for taking time in your busy, busy day to listen in. Let let us hear from you, radio at visualworkplace.com. And right now, I will say that this is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I wish you good visual thinking, a great visual journey. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak. We'll be right back.